All right. Well, it's good to be in church, and um, I love that our church cultivates the presence of God. Um, you know, we have worship leaders, not just song leaders, and there are churches that just, like, get through the set, you know, they just sing the songs, they do the thing, and um, we have a church that likes to cultivate, likes to take our time um, in worship, being sensitive to the presence of the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So, um, now we also have a church that lets me speak, which is <laughs> problematic for a number of reasons, um, but tonight um, I'm going to be teaching, and so uh, I might stand, you know, halfway through and yell at you, but um, we're going to be talking out of John chapter 8, so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and I don't want to waste any time because I have a lot to uh, unpack here. John chapter 8, verse 31, um, Jesus is in an argument in John chapter 8 for the entire chapter, and Jesus, um, you know, it's interesting because like we think of Jesus as meek and mild and somebody who's never, you know, in controversy. But Jesus was very controversial. Uh, he got into arguments, um, and he uh, challenged people to their face um, about what is true and what is false. And he had arguments particularly with the intellectuals um, of his day, uh, people um, called the Pharisees. They were the religious intellectuals of the day, and they had, uh, you know, has anybody gone to college and felt stupid in the presence of your professor, right? And he's like refuting all of your arguments, and you're like, well, I can't say anything because I'm too dumb, and you're too smart, even though I know you're wrong. And um, so Jesus is like, well, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? And so he picks on people his own size. I mean, not really. <laughs> Nobody is his size. But... His, in his human nature, right, because Jesus has two natures, one person, two natures, human nature, Jesus, is uh, picking on the Pharisees, and he's taking, taking them down. And so in John chapter 8, this whole chapter, he's arguing against their arguments. And Paul the Apostle uh, did this frequently as well. Hi, are you taking a picture of me? Wonderful, thank you. Uh, this is not my good side. And I also want to review those pictures before you put them on Instagram just to make sure they're, you know, um, they're good. So uh, how many people hate it when people tag them and they're ugly, ugly pics? <laughs> like tag, tag, tag. And you're like, why are you doing that? Why do you hate me? Immediately block and report, right? So, so where was I? Paul the Apostle does this as well, right? So Paul the Apostle, in, um, in all of, almost all of his letters, he has protracted arguments. And uh, he's, he's, he finds a problem. Honestly, if there were no problems in the early churches, Paul the Apostle probably wouldn't have written a lot. <laughs> you know? He's like, most of it, his writing is just like problem solving. And so he's like, oh, these people don't understand the gospel. All right, here's Romans. You know, like, 
Um, and so he's writing to the Corinthians, and they're a hot mess and kind of dumpster fire church. And um, they live in a port city like New York, so there's a lot of um, weirdness and badness and evil. And so literally, you can just read 1 Corinthians and be like, this is a, a let the, the letter to the church of New York City. And um, because many of the issues he deals with are very similar to ones we deal with. But in 2 Corinthians, he just says, look, you know, uh, we are here as an apostolic team and as an apostle, you know, I am here to take down arguments and things that exalt themselves against the, the power of God. And I'm going, to, I'm going to use my power of argumentation, my power of reason to show you the truth, to show you the light. And um, that's what makes us human. You know, we're rational creatures and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but we are, <laughs> we are uh, made in the image of God and the image of God in us is the intellect and the will, the ability to understand and the ability to act after deliberation. You see, animals don't do that, right? My cat sees an, a, a bird and she doesn't, there's no, you know, contemplation in her mind, right? My cat sees the bird, she goes and beelines over to the window, you know, breaking through the screen and falling 10 feet uh, or 10 floors down to her doom, um, which has never happened yet, but some days I wish it would. <laughs> Just saying, it's a church, so we're allowed to confess. But, okay, so Jesus is in this protracted argument. And in John chapter 8, verse uh, 31, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, um, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Everybody say awesome. Okay, so let's jump into verse uh, 31, where Jesus says uh, to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are my, you are truly my disciples. So you're going to want to take notes here because I have a lot of notes here. And um, if you don't want to take notes, that's great. You probably just don't want to grow. So that's wonderful. <laughs> if your neighbor, if your neighbor's not taking notes, just be like, oh, you don't want to grow tonight? Great. Um, just judge them. You're allowed to judge them, okay? Okay, I'm kidding. Do not judge. Um, so, <laughs> so Jesus says, um, if you abide in my word, you will, you, you are truly my disciples. And um, we need three things. Um, with, when it comes to the word of God, we need three things. Number one, we need a, c a concern to hear it. We have to want to hear the word of God. James chapter 1 verse 16 says, or sorry, 19 says, let every person be quick to listen and slow to speak. When we come to the word of God, we have to, we have to say, okay, I'm positioning myself before this in a posture that is underneath it so that it is speaking down to me. 
in that sense. I am, it is higher than I, and I am lower than it, and I'm pl placing myself in a posture to hear it, and I really want to know what it has to say. You know, th this is one of the concerns that I have with uh, some of the cool guy church models that we have, right? Is the, the word of God is not placed in a position of authority, right? When something's in an authority position, it is the, well, the root word of authority is author, right? And so the author of a book can do whatever it wants. He wants, she wants, because she or he is the author of the book. So they can amend the pages and change the language and change the message and certainly change the message that the reader's hearing, you see, change the characters even. That means that the Bible, if it's our authority, can change us. That means the Bible should be in a position of authority, and I, f I find that a, a lot of our churches use the Bible as a, as a kind of, you know, uh, reference tool, but not something as an authority that's flowing through the minister to the people he's ministering or she's ministering to. And I, th I find that very problematic because, you know, you can, you can tell if a person is listening to the word by how they apply it to their life. And I've met a lot of people that don't really care about what the Bible has to say to them and, and, and according to, you know, what they're doing in their lives. You ask them a question, you see them doing something, you, you say, hey, you know, does the Bible, is, what does the Bible say about doing that? And they're like, well, I don't know and I really don't care. I don't know and I don't care. And probably they don't know because they don't care, right? But if, if you genuinely care about what the Bible says as an authority, as really the primary authority in the life of the believer, then you're going to seek out what the Bible says. That's the book that you're going to want to read. That's the book that you're going to want to seek knowledge from. I love books by other people. I read tons of books by other people. I have a thousand books by other people in my study. But not one of those books is more important to me than sacred scripture. Because not one of those books is sacred other than scripture. And so I don't give a rip about what G.K. Chesterton has to say if it doesn't line up with what scripture says. I don't give a rip what uh, Dr. Henry Cloud says if it doesn't line up with scripture. I love both of those writers, right? And I think they have great things to say. Does that make sense? So we have to position ourselves when we come to scripture. Number two, we need the faith to believe it. Romans chapter 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So uh, we have to have that, that faith, and I believe that faith is a gift. I don't believe it's conjuring this kind of like, okay, I can believe. I believe, I believe, I believe. Just believe, I believe, I believe. It's like when we hear the word of God, there is a, a wonderful supernatural power and grace to the word of God that when we hear it upon hearing it, the grace, the Holy Spirit, because it's the word of the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Holy Spirit accompanies it. And so when, when the word of God is spoken, and this is the powerful, wonderful thing about the word of God, is that sometimes you just have to speak the word. Jesus, in order to get rid of the devil, he, he, all he did was quote scripture. That's all he had to do. Because the scripture has the power of God within it. The very material of it is supernatural. It is from the Holy Spirit, who is its principal author. And so that faith comes by, uh, by hearing it. And then thirdly, we need 
uh, perseverance in continuing with the word of God. We need perseverance in continuing with it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom. So the word of God has to be something we are saturated in, inebriated in. I love the fact that uh, in my childhood, we were, we were forced to memorize scripture and uh, forced at gunpoint because I didn't want to do it because I was full of demonic power. And, and I resisted, but the, but the force was stronger with my father. And so he, uh, <laughs> he overcame me by <laughs> the blood of the belt <laughs> and the word of, of my mom's testimony. John spank him right now. So the idea is, yes, I was spanked. I'm traumatized. I've seen thousands of doctors. They can't heal me. They can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. No, so I'll show you the marks later. So the idea is simply that uh, we need the word of God to dwell richly within us. Dwelling richly within us. We need to fill our brains, our minds with the word of God. And so Jesus promises and he says right here, if you abide in my word, if you abide, that is, if you have this position to hear it, the faith to believe it, the perseverance in continuing in it, you are truly my disciples. And so with, within discipleship, um, there are three things required to be a disciple. Are you ready? You want to hear them? I don't have them. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have them. But I'm going to charge you money to get them, okay? All right, so <laughs> number, number, number one, the first thing required to be a disciple is understanding. Understanding to grasp the words of the teacher. Matthew chapter 15, verse 16 uh, uh, says that Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're dumb. No, Jesus turns to Peter <laughs> and says, are you also still without understanding? Jesus is like kind of rebuking him with a rhetorical you know, phrase. And he's like, Peter, you should know the, the interior, the, the meaning, the true meaning of these parables. And I say this continually, like the stories, you know, are great that, par that Jesus teaches. But the purpose of the parables was actually to judge Israel. He was telling them stories because he was treating them like children. And he was treating them like children because they were acting like children, because they were under judgment. We don't tell stories necessarily to adults. Adults can understand abstract thought. And so when you walk into your, you know, you know, your college class, your professor's not telling stories the whole time. You know, if he is, you need to get your money back, you know. <laughs> because the idea is that y you can handle r real information, right? And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with stories, but to be a disciple, you have to be able to grasp concepts, right? You have to be able to understand things in the abstract. But we also um, have an issue with the words of Christ because only Jesus can actually open our ears to understand. And so in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, it says that he, on the road to Emmaus, he opened the minds of his disciples so that they could understand the scriptures. 
And so a disciple needs to seek the master first for understanding and not rely on his own understanding. There's a lot of folks who come to the scripture and they're relying upon their own understanding in reading the scriptures. And what happens is they end up getting their own revelation, which is a revelation that they've made up. Attention, Joseph Smith. C.C. Mormonism. (laughs) C.C. Jehovah's Witnesses. So that's part of the problem, right? So we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and to give us understanding. We're not supposed to rely on our own understanding. We're we're supposed to trust in the Lord. Number two, a disciple needs uh, to assent, uh, he needs to uh, agree with or assent to the doctrine of his teacher. A disciple needs to be teachable. A disciple needs to be teachable. In other words, um, if we are, um, if we are, if we think, you know, knowledge puffs up, right? Um, in, in its tendency, it doesn't have to, because we have to remember the person who wrote that verse that knowledge puffs up was probably the, one of the most knowledgeable Christians of all time. So, knowledge doesn't have to puff puff up. Um, but we, but it has a tendency to, because then we think we begin to think that we're the source of knowledge, right? That we are the or- originator, that we are the author of this truth. And so, a true disciple, a true, a truly disciplined one, is going to place themselves in a posture of receiving, um, and and speak from that place of reception. And so uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 640, a disciple is not above his teacher. And I could go off on that. I'm not going to, but really quickly, you know, uh, this is the importance of Bible school. This is the the importance of biblical training. Um, Because we want to study that we can show ourselves approved unto God, right? We want to show, we want want the Lord to be instructing us, you know, and we have two ears and one mouth, which means that we need to be hearing twice as much as we need to be talking. Um, I talk a lot, okay? Um, my family talks a lot. We're Italian, and not full-blooded Italian, but enough, enough to talk a lot. <laughs> and we're Irish, so, you know, there's that. So we're loud, and we talk a lot. And the idea here is, um, you know, that when... I began to get into scripture, I realized that uh, I needed impartation. And I do talk a lot, and I do have a lot of things to say, but a lot of people don't realize that for about 30 years of my life, I never taught. In fact, uh, I started teaching. Um, I was never a youth pastor. I was never a pastor at a church. I had never taught or preached regularly until I was about 31. And I spent about 20, well, about, sorry, about 15, at least 15 years studying in silence, listening to hours and hours and hours of other people talking to me. And it's only within the last six years that I've been teaching. And uh, that's why I'm really not good at it. And uh, there are guys who started earlier who are much more suave and, and persuasive. But I still think that it's better to know what you're talking about 
than to know how to talk without knowing what you're talking about. So the idea here is, you know, building that foundation in your life is very, very important. And it's better to be silent than, and, and, and to learn than to talk a lot and not really know what you're talking about. And so these are the marks of the disciple. All right, number three, a disciple needs to be stable so that they can persevere. Um, in John chapter 6, verse 67, it says, after this, after Jesus said something, many of his disciples departed and did not walk with him anymore. And that, that instability within themselves was what caused them to turn away. And Jesus turns to, you know, they didn't have firm faith, right? And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says, do you guys want to go too? You know, this is, this is a tough saying, right? So, so are you guys going to leave me as well? And I'm sure Jesus was chill with that, you know, because he wasn't insecure. He, he had trusted in his father. But Peter says, Lord, he says the words of a stable disciple. He says, Lord, where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. Peter was firm in his faith. There was a faithfulness to Peter. You see, we talk about being faithful as in like, you know, just be consistent. But it's like faithfulness is actually being full of faith. <laughs> being full of a, 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 a firmness of faith, an even keeledness. And many times this comes through experience. Many times this comes through uh, what we would, I would consider to be virtue. And when we talk about the virtue of faith, there is a difference between the virtue of faith and the gift of faith. The gift of faith is guys who can like be like, all right, healed in Jesus' name, and people are healed in Jesus' name, which is amazing. Um, the virtue of faith is the lifestyle and the habit and the continued function of faith over the course of a person's life. And they're not up and down and up and down. And today I'm doubting and today I believe. And tomorrow I'm deconstructing. And t today I am posting, you know, uh, scriptures on my Instagram that have no context. Anyway, <laughs> moving along. Verse 32. So Jesus says, if you abide in me, in my word, you will be my disciple. In verse 32 he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so here... Jesus points to the, the end of discipleship. The end of all discipleship is coming to know the truth. And so Jesus says, you will know the truth. Number one, you will know the doctrine that I'm teaching. In John chapter 18, verse 37, he says, for this I was born and for this I, come, I came into the world that I should give testimony to the truth. And number two, not just the doctrine that he's teaching, but you shall come to know the truth of the grace that I produce. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he's saying that in contrast to the figures of the old law. But the truth of grace, you know, <laughs> grace is a truth. It's like, oh, you just need grace. You don't need truth. Well, actually, grace is a truth. Grace is a part of reality. So when we talk about truth, what we're, all we're talking about is reality. And the proper understanding and definition of truth is that the mind is conformed properly through reason to reality. So when, when, when we say, oh, that person has the truth, it means that there's a correspondence, a proper correspondence between their mind and what is. 
you see? And so that's what we mean by truth. So uh, Jesus says you will be free. So what he means here is um, he's, he's talking about three kinds of freedom. You ready? More writing. Okay. This is going to help you. How many people want to be free tonight? Mm. All right. So, <laughs> okay. So number one, he's talking about the truth um, of, he's talking about freedom from the error of falsehood. The error of falsehood. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 7 says, My mouth will speak the truth. My lips will hate wickedness. So Jesus frees us in, in knowing him because he is the truth. By knowing him, we are free from the error of falsity or falsehood. This is huge. Many times um, we skip this step. There's no skipping steps, right? Jesus wants your mind to be renewed in truth. Christianity is not a religion of fantasy or delusion or wishful thinking or uh, mind over matter or pretending like things don't exist. We don't talk about that around here. Oh, why? Because it's just inappropriate. Oh, it's inappropriate. Oh, okay. So, so we can't talk about something that's real because it's, it's just not, you know, you don't want to. Your emotions are disturbed by it. Right? That's, th that's essentially what we're doing, right? My emotions are disturbed by this, therefore we can't talk about it. Well, how about you get your emotions in order so that we can have the conversation? Right? Because God isn't afraid of truth. He made it. God's not afraid of reality. He created it. And that's a general principle. Obviously, there are things that, you know, are pretty gruesome, and they do need a, a context, right, uh, in, a, in a particular place. I'm not saying we just walk around, you know, uttering, the Bible says a fool utters all his mouth. Like, there's a time and a place for certain conversations, okay? So I'm saying, generally speaking, generally speaking, God isn't afraid of your questions. God's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of answering the questions that you have about faith, about Christianity. There's nothing that God is intimidated by as it pertains to reality. There's no taboos in Christianity. God answers all of our questions. Maybe in other religions, but not in Christianity, because we are the religion of, of truth. We're the religion of Jesus, the answer to reality. Okay, so we are set free from any sort of lying, any sort of falsity, any sort of uh, uh, error, any sort of darkness or ignorance in the mind. Number two, we are set free um, from the slavery of sin. So we have, the, we have sound doctrine to set us free from false doctrine. We have grace to set us free from the slavery of sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 2 says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed me from the law of sin and death. Number three, we are freed from corruption, from bodily corruption, from eternal corruption. 
and this through Jesus Christ as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 21 says, the creature will be freed from its slavery to corruption. So when Jesus is talking about freedom, he is talking about the freedom from error and falsehood, the freedom from the slavery of sin, and the freedom from corruption. Now, when it comes to number two, the truth of grace, we are in grace, freed from the bondage of the law, as we just talked about, the law, uh, uh, contrasting it with the law of liberty, and we are freed from the bondage of sin, by which uh, Jesus took away uh, uh, that bondage by giving us the liberty of righteousness, and we are freed from the bondage of, uh, I'm going to use a big word here, concupiscence, concupiscence, which is uh, the, the, the body being under a, a domination of urges and compulsion to do th certain things. Notice that the key here is liberty. Notice that the key here is freedom. You know, we live in a, in a society that is constantly telling people they're not free. Have you ever noticed that? You're an addict. You'll always be an addict. Take these drugs and you'll feel better. And now you're a slave to drugs. <laughs> we, live in a, we live in a society that is reducing people to chemical substances, right? You're just a bunch of chemicals. Yeah, so basically those synapses that are firing in your brain telling you this, it's actually just chemicals that are just, it's, you're just a bunch of chemicals. And, and what it's doing is it's, it's causing us to be more and more enslaved and less and less free. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 free will, everybody has free will to some degree. Every single person, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you, God, would, God did not say, hey, thou shalt not murder, but I know you don't have free will, so have at it. Right? No civilization has rules that say you can murder anybody because you're not free. Does that make sense? So when it comes to free will, and this is a theological argument with Calvinists particularly, because Calvinists are like, yeah, there's no free will, you know. And uh, normal Christians are like, yeah, there is free will. You know, if you're a Calvinist, I'm sorry, but you're not a normal Christian. I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. But free will, God has given everybody a free will to some degree. And he says, you know, when he says thou shalt not murder, he means it. He doesn't mean, well, you can't. I'm commanding you to do this, but you really can't do it. So, ha, ha. Jesus is commanding or Jesus is telling us that in grace we are liberated even beyond that. Now, verse, verse 33, getting into the good stuff here. They answered him, and they said, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So now here, they are, um, this kind of reveals their hardness of heart. This reveals, you know, have you ever been in an argument with someone and all they wanted to do was just win the argument, right? If you haven't, you should argue with me sometime <laughs> because I will win. Um, and I will do anything to win. Anything. Anything. So the Pharisees wanted to win the argument because they saw that it was between him and them, and they were, it was before a common audience. So, sort of, so I was actually cl it's closer to a debate. 
kind of an unofficial debate. And um, they reveal here their ignorance and their, their um, deceit because they're saying we've never been enslaved to anybody when clearly in scripture I remember uh, their ancestors being enslaved to Egypt, right? So in the past they were enslaved to Egypt. And then in the present, they're enslaved to Rome. They're paying taxes to Rome. Well, why would you pay taxes if you weren't enslaved to a degree, right? They couldn't even kill Jesus. They had to turn him over to the Romans and, and get the Romans to do it. They weren't in control of themselves, right? So they're, here they are lying to Jesus simply because they want to win the argument. And then Jesus says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus doesn't, it's interesting, because like they make this point, when have we ever been, and instead of like getting into the details, he's like, I'm smarter than you, and I don't, and I know this is just a rabbit trail that you're trying to lead me on, so I'm not going to go down there. Isn't Jesus amazing? He's like, he, he sees where it's going, he's like, yeah, I'm not interested. Here's the issue. Here's the pinpoint problem. And I'm going to tell you what the problem is. He says, truly, truly, people who are, if everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he starts by saying, making a general statement saying everyone, every single person. And this is profound. This isn't, because you have to understand the, the Jews you know, in the previous segment, they're like, we've never been enslaved to anybody. And you realize, like, how arrogant that is, right? They're, they're, they've kind of been raised in this spiritual pedigree thinking that they're, you know, amazing. And Jesus is like, look, everybody, including you, if you, as a Jew, sin, you are a slave to sin. So this includes both the Jews and the Greeks. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, it says, there is no difference between Jew and Greek all have sinned. And so Jesus says, um, you are a slave to sin if you sin. Now, the purpose of this is, as I said earlier, we are rational souls. And God has made us a particular way. He created man. He saw that it was good. Man falls from the original creation, and because man fell, man actually uh, disfigured the image of God inside of him. And so the kind of slavery that Jesus is talking about is the, the slavery that is not in, whenever man is not in accordance with his nature, he is a slave to something. Whenever he is not acting in accordance with the, the, his reason, whenever he's acting in, in accordance with unreason, he is a slave to that thing. And so, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. You know, every single modern movement um, is predicated upon this idea of bringing freedom to people. 
you know, if we just, if we just create bigger machines, we'll have freer societies. If we just have democracy, we'll have freer societies. If we just liberate women from being themselves, they'll be free. <laughs> if we can turn women into men, they'll be free. Um, if, we can, if we can turn men loose on women, they'll be free. If we can cause men to act like animals and have sex with everything that walks around uh, and, and become like Hugh Hefner, that's the ideal, right? But as soon as a man like commits to a woman and decides to have children, you know, they would applaud you for telling them that, the, that you had, you know, uh, multiple affairs. But if you tell them you have multiple kids, you're a freak. So we've turned men into animals and we've turned women into men. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Freedom, right? So th the modern concept of freedom is unfortunately not rooted in natural reason, natural law. And it's rooted in, in, in humanism. And humanism says man is the measure of all things. And that whatever, it's satanic, right? It's, it's this do what thou wilt uh, principle of life. And so that whatever we do, we're right. Whatever we do, we're right. Men make mistakes, but the human race never makes a mistake collectively. And um, so that's the ideal of progress that we're, that we're supposed, this, this lie that we're supposed to believe. But the root of it is this idea, false idea of freedom, that, that true freedom is the right the right, right? I have rights. Hey, don't mess with my rights. True freedom is the right to do whatever you want. No, true freedom is the right to do whatever you ought. See, when I have a driver's license, I have freedom to drive, right? Remember that day that you got your driver's license? You're like, I'm amazing. I'm God. I'm driving. Can you believe this? Oop, I just hit somebody. Sorry. <laughs> They'll recover. No, so that first day you got your driver's license, you were freaking out. You were like, this is incredible, right? You had freedom to finally drive. But that freedom didn't include the, the, the right to, or the, the ability to run people over. Does that make sense? You didn't have, you don't have the freedom to drive on the sidewalk. You don't have the, the freedom to, to <laughs> drive through buildings. You have the freedom to do as you ought, you see? That's true freedom. And G this is the freedom that Jesus is talking about. But what sin does is it warps this. And it actually causes us to become slaves to what we think we're being liberated by, by doing whatever we want. And God is like, no, 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 no. You are driving your life <laughs> over a, a, a bridge. <laughs> you are driving your life off of the road and you're hitting the guardrail and you're driving it off of a cliff because you're supposed to be driving your life on the road. And so Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will be free to, to properly be, be who you were meant to be. But when you take control of your life, you ruin it, thinking that whatever you do is right and becoming a law unto yourself. And that's why we talk about the law of God. The word sin is, to define it properly, it means to rebel in thought, 
word or deed against the eternal law of God. Okay, so in, in, in our desires, right, which is our thoughts, in our words, which is what we say and speak, and in our deeds, what we act, how we act. Well, if, if, if we, in any of those three categories, rebel against the, the eternal law of God, we're sinning. We're sinning because we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're, we're taking the car off the road. We're taking the car off the road. We're, we're acting, we're taking our lives out of alignment from how they ought to be. And so G Jesus is uh, talking here about spiritual slavery, where they thought he was talking about physical slavery. And that's another point. Jesus, they say, well, when have we ever been enslaved? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're thinking of the natural slavery. And this is part of the problem with a lot of the movements that we have in the modern day, right? Black liberation theology. Black liberation theology, which is on the lips of a lot of black writers and thinkers, and, and you know, James Cone, who was a famous uh, professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary, um, which is now a cesspool, unfortunately, of, of horrible liberal theology, believed that, that black people uh, needed to be physically delivered from a physical oppression. Jesus is saying, no, 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 your primary problem isn't political. Your primary problem is spiritual. Black people need the same salvation that white people do. <laughs> for for any, any goodness in white civilization has been because of the salvation that has come through Christ. It's not because white people are better than, than black people. Any goodness in black civilization has been because of, this, of the salvation in Jesus Christ. Any good in any Christian civilization has been because of Jesus Christ. It hasn't been because of skin color. The problem isn't skin, it's sin. And that's something we all struggle with. And so we need to, so, so but again, in our society, people are duped, right? Into materializing these things and not realize, and putting the physical, the natural order above the supernatural order. And so Jesus says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. And he goes on and says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And this is because Jesus has redeemed us from the power of sin. He's redeemed us from the power of death. This is through his death. But there is, again, a power in sin. And I really believe that when, we, when it comes to sin, Pastor David and I were talking about this the other night, that sin is kind of like this ring of power, like the, in the Lord of the Rings. And every time Frodo put it on, Sauron could see him. And I believe that like every time we put this ring of power on, this, this sin that we struggle with, we're opening ourselves up to, up to bondage. 
we're opening ourselves up to the bondage of demonic oppression. There's people that struggle with demonic oppression, and I believe that a lot of it is due to the fact that they're sinning. They're living in sin. And so when you sin, how many people want to know what happens when you sin? When we sin, we rebel against God. We hate his law. We harm our neighbor. And we mortally wound our soul. When we sin, we break our unity. We break the unity of our holy fellowship with God. We disrupt the harmony of his just order. We rupture the integrity of our love for him. When we sin, we choose to worship a, a false idol over God. We choose to serve antichrist over Christ. And we, we choose to exalt the sinful self over the Holy Spirit. When we sin, our soul becomes injured. It becomes weak. It becomes blind in understanding. It becomes lame in exterior actions and dry in our affections. This is, this is what happens when we sin. This is the effects of sin. When we sin... We become an workers of iniquity. And by becoming a worker of iniquity, we ally ourselves with the kingdom of darkness. We open ourselves to oppression by demonic spirits, and we actually place ourselves out from under the authority of Christ and under the authority of Satan. How many people want to sin? <laughs> now, not all sins are equal. Not all sins are equal. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for this generation. So clearly Jesus makes distinctions of degree in gravity of sin. But the point is simply this. All of those things happen to us when we sin because the wages of sin is death. Sin causes us to be, it's, sin is self-destructive. The best way to look at sin is like killing yourself. It's not adding something to you, it's taking something away from you. When you sin, you never add anything to you. St. Augustine said that sin is nothing. To sin is to actually do nothing you're not adding anything to your life. You're not helping yourself. You're not adding good to yourself. You're adding harm to yourself. The unfortunate part is that a lot of us don't see this. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the slavery of sin. To the bondage that sin creates. You know, there's a story in Judges chapter 16, 15 and 16, of a guy named Samson. Samson's super strong, you know, Greek-like body like me, like, you know what I mean, like that kind of muscle right there, that's without steroids, by the way, <laughs> if you want more pictures of my body, they're on my Instagram, <laughs> how about we stop posting pictures of our bodies on our Instagrams, how about that, you know that uh, the Bible says that if, a, if a, in the Old Testament, if a person dug a ditch and an ox fell into it from another neighbor, they had to pay the price. So ladies, 
if you dig a ditch and a man falls into it, you pay the price. That was for free. Now, that man is sinning by lusting, right? He's sinning by lusting, but you're by no means free because you were tempting him. So modesty is important because we're talking about mortal sin. We're talking about sins that can send people to hell, right? And we're talking about bondage. And we don't want to be people. Do you, how many ladies here want to put men in? Well, I mean, that's actually, I'm not going <laughs> to. Forget it. <laughs> Moving along. This is what happens. This is what happens when the worship team isn't up here. But the, the idea here is simply this, that this is, this is the idea here, okay? Samson, so Samson is this incredible, incredibly strong, powerful person anointed by the Spirit of God to destroy the kingdoms of darkness, right? He's this incredible, anointed by the power of God to be, I mean, honestly, the, the most, the strongest person outside of Jesus, probably, in the entire Bible, physically, killing, like, thousands of people, right? Um, but he had, he had uh, one weakness, right? Uh, lust. That was his problem. He couldn't stop lusting. So he's sleeping with prostitutes. Um, and no jokes on that one. I'm not making any jokes on that one. But the point is simply this, that he's, he's lusting, and, he's, and he finds this, probably a prostitute um, named Delilah. And she ends up uh, being his downfall. Right, so he he kicks butt for Jesus or for God for Yahweh. He kicks butt, does his mission, saves Israel, and then he goes back home and he's lusting and he's in bondage to this woman. Now here's the thing: he can't get out of this right because of his blindness, and he's in bondage. And then in, it says that when she cut his hair off, his power came out from him, and the Lord had left him, and. It says that the, the Philistines captured him, and what, what did they do to him? They plucked his eyes out. You see, what ended up happening to him in the natural what was, is what already had happened to him in the spiritual. He was already blind his entire life and in bondage to sin his entire life. And this is what happens when you're in bondage in your personal life, in the spirit realm, in the interior man. It ends up manifesting itself in the natural. And this is what happens to Christians all the time. These seeds are sown, and it takes a long time for them to grow. It takes a long time for them to grow. And that's why many times people get away with things, but they don't get away for a long time. Because eventually, it, it, if it's not dealt with, it manifests itself. And Samson was strong. So how much more do we in the strength of Christ, need to be, be careful about our lives. So this message is a message to cause us to think about the nature of sin. Worship team can come up. And um, I just really want freedom for people. I want freedom for people. Now, listen to me. When I say this, some people are like, okay, well, Gabe, um, you know, I have, I have an issue that I've been struggling with for years and I haven't been able to overcome it, right? Um, so for some people, it's, 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 maybe it's booze, something like that, right? Okay, so we're not stupid here at, at this church, right? 
we understand that some things are chemical, right? Some things are chemical. And bro, if you're struggling with alcoholism, there's therapy for that that can actually help you walk through that. Because the last thing I want to do is tell people to pray harder and read their Bible harder when it's actually not just an issue of that. Does that make sense? So there are certain things that, that are actual, you know, in the sense of like clinically diagnosed serious disorders or, or things like that. And, and those require scientific means. Now, they can, now you can come up here or, or you can sit in your seat and God can do a miracle in your life and totally deliver you. I believe in that. But miracles are miracles because they're not common. So we have to understand that, you know, there's, there, but the key here is this, that in every single respect, we can have the liberty of God within us. And that liberty is something that must dominate us. We should be dominated by the liberty in Christ. Paul says that we, should, we, we are slaves to Jesus Christ. We're slaves to righteousness. And that's the best way to look at ourselves, to look at ourselves as being transferred from slavery to sin, which ultimately leads to destruction, into slavery to righteousness, slavery to the, to the kingdom of God. So I just want this word to, to kind of rest on you. And, you know, uh, when, we under, when we look at the, the city that we live in, when we look at the culture that we live in, we have to look at it, at it with spiritual eyes. Eyes that don't say, well, I don't, nobody's, we don't have slavery anymore. We don't have slavery anymore. No, we have more slavery than ever before. We have more slavery to, to sin than ever before. We have people who are in bondage to sin. And the way out is Jesus. He points to himself. If you abide in his word, you are his disciple. If you abide in him, you are his disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know Jesus, and Jesus will set you free because he is the truth. So, Father, I just thank you for this word tonight. Lord, I pray that you would move upon us, cause us to, cause us to see the areas of bondage in our own lives. Areas that we don't want to let go of, maybe. Maybe there's, they're pleasureful, like the ring of power. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that the end of that is not pleasure, but pain and suffering and destruction and death. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would truly detest sin, that we would be horrified by sin, that, Lord, we would turn with loathing from sin, and that you would cause within us such a divine frustration against sin, that we would strongly stand firm on grace, fighting against it, waging warfare against it so that we can live and move and have our being in the spirit of freedom, which is the Holy Spirit.